podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Ethan, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Um, you know, all except for my pricing page on my website. I mean, I, I created it, but I have no idea if the prices are correct. Uh, you know, yeah, people... it's <laughs> so corny sometimes, man. <laughs> ben is just like laughing over there, looking at you. Like, is this is this really how we're going to start it off? We got Ben Morenstein on the podcast. He's the founder of Tuple.app. They are a uh, a platform where you can do real time coding with a uh, another developer um, anywhere in the world. Um, you'll probably correct me if I'm if I'm uh, misstating that, but. Super successful business, been going for a long time. He's got a new idea that we're going to talk about here. It's for split testing pricing pages. Oh, really? <laughs> oh my god! That I know it's so crazy. It's, it's so surprising. You know, I, I think uh, we're going to get into it, of course. But one of the things that I'm interested in hearing from from Ben is how he expects a company to hand over the keys to the most critical piece of their funnel. So that'll be interesting to dive into. What part are you? I knew you were going to ask me that, actually. I think we rehearsed it. Um, I'm curious about just like who are competitors of this? Like I was uh, look thinking about like ClickFunnels, not really. I mean, you know, there's various, there's various services that will help you optimize prices. There's various services that are going to help you create great landing pages or sales pages, but very few that integrate the two and optimize it for you. So, okay. Well, we'll make sure to raise those questions and not address them at all during this interview. Perfect. Uh, that'll be my goal here. And uh, without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. Hello. Um, I got to say, it's it's funny to hear you say that we've been around for a long time. It's been like two and a half years. Two and a half it's years. Like that's, it's like a, <laughs> all of us have aged at least ten years in twenty twenty. That's it's true. It's true. That's fair. But yeah, it's just like this feels like the classic like startup thing where it's like, yeah, two year old company. That's like old news. Yeah, right. I've actually seen this this sentiment reflected in like people's uh, like one or two people have tweeted something like, um, like I know Tuple is like the old established thing for doing this, but how are people doing this now? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it just came out. Well, you talked about it in another interview that uh, you have a hard time sticking with the projects once they are established. You tend to jump off and do your own thing. So that's true. Are you feeling that at all now? Not yet. The running the business is like it changes enough. Like every time we add a person to the team, my job changes and like the company changes. So so far it's like different enough, like month to month, that I haven't felt that like I'm sick of working on this this same same old thing. That's good to hear. All right. Well, I don't want to get too sidetracked at the very top of the hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, what about so if we are talking about tuple, but what if we can transition back into the business idea? And that is, did you think of this because you were putting together pricing or what what sparked this idea? Maybe I should restate the idea just to make sure we're we're clear on, on what we're talking about. Yeah, here, and then I'll totally. Kinda, I'll get back into it. So, the the basic gist is this: no one bats an eye at A/B testing their landing page, right? They're like, yeah, of course you A/B test a landing page. You try different headlines, you try different call to actions on the buttons, things like that, and that can certainly move the needle at a certain part of the funnel in your business. But I think an even bigger lever that people are much less willing to pull is different pricing. And if you, I think, are the typical, let's say, so like everything is colored by my own experience, of course. Like I'm a developer turned founder. 
And I am friends with lots of developers turned founders. And I think it's a really common, not quite failure mode, but like maybe deficiency, I guess, or something of people like me is that we tend to like be a little bit timid about pricing. And uh, even if we're not, we tend to set it once and then never come back to it. And it's just such a huge lever to pull. Like if you care about increasing revenue, if that's what your goal is, it's, it's in terms of like dollars per hour of effort, I think it can be some of the easiest money uh, that, that there is out there for, especially for like B2B type uh, SaaS apps. Yeah, we, we had a guest on here previously, Erin Hooley, and she talked about e-commerce, three levers that she pulls. You know, she said there's traffic that you get to your site there's conversion rate, and then there's average order value. And of mm. course, you can cre- increase average order value by adding items to the cart, all sorts of things. But one easy way to increase the average order value is just to change the price or decrease it because you're getting a lot more traffic and you know, you're going to get more sales that way, increase conversions. So that's true in the e-commerce world. But the the interesting thing is like in the e-commerce world, you have like a real cost of goods, right? Like you actually got to ship somebody a product. And so like, and then like they get the product and they hold it in their hand. They're like, yeah, this feels like $40 worth of coffee beans or whatever. And then, but like with software, it's this weird ephemeral thing where it's valuable at different amounts to different people. And there's no like inherent price tag or worthiness to it. And so you kind of, you kind of get to make up the price. It's not, of course, that's not totally true, but it's a little bit true. Uh, and so I think there's a particular opportunity in people uh, selling software to set prices that are perhaps a little bit higher than they, they might be totally comfortable with. So are you imagining a software that does like testing out some different price options? Is it just the prices? Is it adding different categories and tiers? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think this is actually kind of like a productized consulting service or something like it. I think it's more consulting than software because it's pretty easy to run an A-B test. There's lots of tools that will do that. Running an A-B test that changes the pricing on the back end, that is a different beast and requires a heck of a lot more sort of buy-in and confidence. And so I think the, I think the fundamental reason most people don't have their pricing set at more advantageous levels for themselves is that it makes them uncomfortable. So particularly like these like founder-led companies, it's like they're optimizing their price for like a lack of people complaining about the price being too high. It's like, I don't like it when people complain about the price, therefore, let me make it low. Or like, I don't like when people ask us to justify our price as compared to this competitor, therefore, let me make it low. There are all these sort of like natural, but not sort of business rational reasons to not try different prices and packaging. And I'm also, I'm not, I'm talking mostly about raising prices here, but sometimes I don't even think this is like what people, what people always need. You don't necessarily just have to like increase the prices. There's different ways of like laying out your tiers, for example. Like, what if you made your free tier a little less generous? What if you made it uh, easier for people to have expansion opportunities into higher tiers, things like that? And I, there's just there's a lot of there are these really powerful things. Like Tuple as a business is so much better because it has expansion revenue opportunities in it. Like we charge per seat, and if we didn't, it would be a shell of it would be like a, a joke compared to what it actually is. And so if we hadn't gotten that right by experimenting and figuring out how to how to charge for this, I think we would be worse off. And so I, I just want to bring that experience to more people. But yeah, I think at the core, it's like kind of consulting wrapped with like, we're going to use some software to test various pricing slash maybe hook into your system somehow to charge different prices for people. I wonder if people don't do this because it seems like such a weighty decision, right? If you're going to mess with prices, you can easily get people out there on the internet to uh, reel against you. These guys are so greedy. Like I'm, I'm going to start a comp- competitor tomorrow or whatever it is. 
and, and badmouth you. Do you think that's part of it? I think that's most of it. I think it's almost all of it. I don't think yeah. almost anyone would say, no, it's a bad idea to test different prices for a business. I think pretty much everyone would agree with that in principle. I think it's the psychological barriers. So this gets into a, a bit of an objection that I want to raise here for this idea is uh, it's really easy to to piss people off, of course. Maybe for you, Chris. Jeez. Well, I mean, I, I did state at the top of the hour. That's my goal here is, is always to make Ethan cry during the episode. <laughs> nice. I, it reminds me of Amazon back in the day. I think this is in 2000. They uh, had a very famous issue where they <clears throat> they tested the prices of DVDs. And they weren't forthcoming about this, of course, but some people ended up paying more for DVDs. And that really upset a lot of people. And they had to issue this apology and they had to say that we didn't segment customers by demographics or anything like that in order to give them the higher prices. Yeah. That's the worst example to judge your business on. <laughs> people that pay for stuff like Netflix are the worst kind of consumers. Like if you're, if like, if the difference between $9 and $11 a month is like the kind of customers that you have, like I feel bad for you and like you're kind of already doomed. Like, you, yes, you can build businesses there. Fine. Top, lots of people do it. I don't. I mean, I'm being I'm being facetious, but yeah, like that's helpful. <laughs> I want to sell B two B SaaS. I want to talk yeah. to someone like d- the difference between two hundred and two thousand is like whatever. It's like I, yeah. I got stuff to do, man. I got a credit card. Let's go. So let's, let's draw from your own experience because you tested pricing throughout the entire time of Tuple. You probably you may still be. Last podcast that I heard you on, you were you were uh, still tweaking it a little bit, and you joked that some people would ask you, "Am I on the the higher pricing or am I on the?" you know, the lower pricing. And it seemed like it was kind of like, you know, flippant the way that you bring yeah. it up. Can you talk more yeah. about that? Well, I mean, so I, I tested... So when I st- when we first started working on our app, we um, I have two co-founders and they're both technical. So they started coding and I started selling. And so I was looking around for people that were willing to sign up uh, for a product that didn't exist yet. And so I was like reaching through, out through my network and being on podcasts and things like that and building an email list and emailing them and trying to find people that were interested enough to pay us money to sort of build a, a small collection of like true believers. And um, when I, to like sort of make sure I was roughly on the right track, I would ask people to pay ahead of time to make sure they actually really were interested. And whenever I asked people to pay, I would pick a different price. And it was usually higher than the last price I had asked. And I just did this to kind of test the market and see like what what works. What do people, you know, say not even notice? When do people start pushing back? What price slows it down because they have to go get approval from someone versus not? Mm-hmm. But I think that method of testing is almost acceptable for people. People are used to the idea that if they get in later, that they're going to have to pay more. And during a phased rollout, yeah, that's much more palatable than if you were to say that just because we, you know, you, you had the luck of the draw, Ethan, we're going to charge you one price and uh, Ben, you're going to get a 20% higher price and cookie your browser, that's what you're going to see. <laughs> I have a bunch of thoughts on that. So, so I think, again, you're sort of, you're doing the thing that everybody does, which is like, but what if someone gets mad at us? And it's like, that's just not the way... Like, We're talking about optimizing part of your business here. And like, optimizing for people never being mad at you is not quite right. And I think that's part of the problem with this podcast, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's, again, it's a totally natural reaction. I have that same reaction. I don't want people to be mad at me. I hate it. But like, if you use that to guide your business decisions, it's probably not a super good... It's not a very clear guide. It's not always wrong, but it's not optimal, right? Also, you can make people not mad so easily. Like if they go, wait a second, like Ethan paid 20% less. You're like, oh yeah, sorry, we're testing pricing. I'm going to just give you that same discount. Done. Next next problem. Move on with your day. Everybody's fine. Also, a thing that 
I think is kind of an interesting thing about this business idea is that let me lay out the full the full idea because I actually feel like we haven't said the full thing. And I just want to like imagine it from the sort of the beginning, which is like Ethan comes to me and is like, Ben, I'm, I'll go to Ethan. I'm like, hey, I have this new startup. What it does is it makes you more money. Ethan goes, I'm interested. I love money. Let's do it. And I say, okay, here's how it's going to work. Um, you already have a slash pricing page. Half the time when someone goes to your slash pricing page, they're going to go to your pricing page. Half the time, they're going to go to one that I control. I'm not even going to talk to you about what I'm doing on this pricing page, but I'm going to sign up people through it. Um, we're going to, we're still going to, uh, let's say like you have to be on Stripe. I'm just going to hook them into your Stripe account. You're still going to get the subscriptions and the credit cards and the money, but I'm controlling the numbers on there and the packaging and all that. And at the end of the month, we're going to see who added more MRR. And if uh, after a quarter of doing this, you like what I, my page is doing, we can just you know send 100% of traffic to, to my page instead of your page. Um, and maybe you pay me based on a percentage of the increase. So you're like, look, I'm adding 5K a month using my pricing page. I'm like, look, I'm adding 8K a month on the one that I, I made for you. Um, we'll take a chunk of that, that difference because, hey, we're, we're adding a lot of value to you. This, so, I mean, the sales proposal is quite appealing because you know, you're, you're letting people test to see if it works. Um, and then I think that the only, like, if, I, if you were pitching me that just now, I'd basically say yes. And then the, the, the resistance point is where you would say, and it's going to cost this much, you know. And for some reason, I say, hey, wait a second. Then, you know, yes, you're making me more money, but you're taking it all. Or, you know, or if you were to say you're going to charge me even if I don't make more money, which doesn't sound like you're going to, you're probably going to propose. So, would you, would you not even charge for that first quarter? Would that be like a free trial or... Something like that. I don't know. That sounds like a thing I'd I'd probably want to test a little bit, you know? Right. <laughs> Meta. <laughs> Meta. Of okay. Course. So you try some things. I think that the sort of like uh, performance-based payment works makes a lot of sense here. Um it's like it costs you nothing. Like the risk is, is not there. And that and you would only because this is sort of a consulting engagement. It's like you only take customers you think you can make a big difference in their bottom line. So you go after the people who have like pricing that to your eye is soft that you could increase and, and get away with. Um and by the way. One of these, another thing that kind of obje- deals with one of, these, one of these objections that you've brought up, Christopher, is you don't even actually have to charge them the higher price. You can just have them agree to a higher price, and then when they click through to, and like enter the card, you just say, "Oh, we're going to toss you a discount and then give it to you at this price instead." But you just sort of record, like, "Oh, we could have signed up this customer at this price instead," and then you don't even need to make any backend billing changes. It's just like, "Yeah, it's still going to flow through the same system." But like we got it, we got you a lead that could have been more, so that you could have had this much more revenue if you had let us actually do this. By the way, just a call back to that Amazon scandal, call it whatever. I feel like part of it was that they, they like actually maybe raised prices when people would visit a product and not buy it. Wasn't that part of it? Like, oh, I'd go check it out, maybe put it in my cart. Yeah, no, and then I'd wait a few days, and then the next time they'd come back to my computer and they'd have increased the price by fifteen percent, right? I don't know if that was actually Amazon who did that. There's always that recommendation out there that you use an incognito window when you browse airline tickets because uh, mm-hmm. airlines track that and you know they'll come out. And I think someone actually debunked them doing that, but you know, it's one of those things that have hung around for a long time. I think it's a good point to talk about some, uh, not necessarily competing businesses, but businesses who are doing similar things in other niches. In Amazon, this has been a very well-established add-on. Splitly comes to mind, and they do what we're describing. It's more of an automated fashion. They have this tool, this price optimizing tool. I forget exactly what it's called, but it will go in and and automatically adjust your price depending on your inventory, competitors' inventory, 
time of day, whatever it is, and, and manage that for you. So it's striking to me that there's such a difference in in technology and maturity between something that is for a layperson seems relatively adjacent, right? It's it's an e-commerce for SaaS. Why why is there such a difference? I mean, you talked about the psychology of the the SaaS consumer. It does seem like e-commerce people are more willing to test prices there and are sort of more accustomed to the idea of like a, something like a dynamic price or a price that fluctuates over time. But to me, it, it makes even more sense than the software side where it's like you're kind of buying this ephemeral thing that doesn't necessarily have, need to have like a lower bound or an upper bound in terms of the value it's providing. We're facing this, I think, especially now as, as, uh, as the economy gets more complex and there's different ways to transfer value and there's so many different types of customers that you can be in touch with. But, you know, human beings have difficulty with this. You know, we, we, weren't, we weren't built to understand numbers even beyond the thousands really on a regular basis. And so, you know, we started with some shells and trading them and that all worked out well. And now all of a sudden, a lot of people are stalled by this. They're stalled by, oh, how much is that worth? Oh, somebody else got that, a better price for that. It's not fair. There's a lot of fairness things that come up for people. And when we think about them rationally, oftentimes... You know, they do those fairness experiments. If you have to split $10 with another person, right? And they get to decide how much they get to take, right? And they say, I want $9 and I'm going to give that guy a dollar. The guy who's going to get a dollar will say, no, 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 no. None of, no, none of us is going to get any of this, right? Which is a totally stupid idea because then you just passed up a dollar. The people do it because it doesn't feel, feel fair. So I think one, one thing that that leads me to is just that because there can be such a stall with anybody around this, the outsourcing of it is nice because you can kind of take it off your mind and you can say, listen, it's being dealt with in a professional, professional scientific manner. Yeah, I thought of the exact same thing. It's just based on what Ben is saying here is a tremendous part of the value is that you allow that person to not come to grips with like, oh, I have to figure out pricing. I have to think about this. I have to charge more. It's They make the decision yep. to hire you and then they don't have to think about it. They know that's handled and they can sleep better at night. Yeah. And I think most people and certainly the people that would be potential customers of this can recognize that this is an important lever to try to pull and it can be very impactful. But because of the psychological quirk of people complaining about pricing feels like a personal attack and feels threatening, they don't do it. And so what you're selling is the freedom of your own freedom from your own psychological foibles. That's what this this service is. That reminds me of uh, episode 37 that we had on the show with Alexi Varashaga. It was an inside the business episode for Award Wallet and he shared very candidly that he hasn't figured out pricing and it's something that he's just continually punted on. He he doesn't really know what changes to make. He would he he would pay for someone to come in and and help on that level. And by the way, a, a point that we haven't even touched on really. So I've been talking mostly about pricing and packaging. So like, what are the numbers and how are the what how are the tiers laid out and things like that. But I think we haven't even really touched on is the fact that this pricing page is probably the most important conversion point in your funnel, right? Like this is critical. Like you're about to get the credit card and maybe charge money or start a trial or something. And again, I think pe- people kind of just like, you know, they put something together and then it works and then they move on. And they don't stop to think like, hey, if we spent 100 hours, could we get this conversion rate to go up by 15%? And if it turns out, yes, then well, that 100 hours was totally worth it. But you got other stuff going on, you know, you're trying to make the product better, you're trying to answer support requests, that kind of thing. And so 
there's not just like a, hey, what should the numbers be? But also like, is this even good? Have you done user tests to make sure that people understand the pricing page when they see it, that the call to actions are clear, that it loads fast enough? Like there's, there's effort you can put into the conversion stuff that could be just as impactful. And so at the end of the month, when I say, okay, my page added this much MRR and your page added this much MRR, it could be that some of my gains are just from doing the sort of industry standard best practices better than you are. Let's get into some of the action steps someone could take to get this idea going. So at the end of the day, you have to convince someone to let you do this. It's not a software product that you sign up for and then it just runs. It is a give me the keys to the kingdom a little bit. Give me some very critical, sensitive traffic and let me control things that make me uncomfortable. So I think what you need to do, I think, is build trust. Show that you are a credible person that can do this and should be trusted in this way. And so I think you want to create some things that demonstrate that you know these things and that you know you're doing. So I would probably be focused on creating some sort of website or white paper or series of videos or something that talks about your expertise here and why this is a good idea and the, and the kind of tests that you would want to run and, and know about and, and things like that. Create some artifacts of competence, basically. And then turn that, hopefully, into just your first customer. Like You need an anchor customer that you can use for testimonials and case study and things like that. Um, so in the early days, I might be trying to... I would be probably charging less and trying to work my network and see like who's a friend of a friend that might say yes to this. Does somebody have like a SaaS app on the side that makes them a few grand, but they're not really paying attention to? A lot of those exist out there in the world. Like It's not like a multi-million dollar business, but it's you know something that makes a little bit of money that someone wouldn't mind you taking a little bit of a risk with. Um, you're kind of trying to like bootstrap this like trust loop where you get a customer and they say nice things about you, which lets you get more customers, which let, who then go say nice things about you. For that piece of content that's going to be the uh, you know building that article of competence in your Mixergy interview, you had mentioned that you built intermediate explanatory videos as opposed to a beginner one for I think it was Vim for programmers or for Ruby or something like that. Would that apply here, or, or would you recommend building beginner content? I don't think I would make beginner content here. I don't think you're trying to prove that you know the beginner stuff. You're trying to be like, I am a highly paid, highly compensated expert in this this topic. So, I so by nature of that, it's not going to be as easily shared or spreadable. You're not necessarily trying to get a lot of eyeballs on this. You're trying to get people who... The fewer people who do see it to trust you more than they would if you were just creating big, beginner content. Definitely. Yeah. I wouldn't measure the success of those that content on like pure number of views or something. That's not a great metric. It's more like, are the right people are seeing it? In terms of starting, we talked about like starting with a small, maybe you got a friend who's got a SaaS, let's say they're making 5,000 a month or something, and you want to use it as a testing ground. Does that, does that sound like a good testing ground for us? Is that worthwhile territory to get into? Or do we want to even aim a little bit higher just so we know we have the right numbers that we're working with? Yeah, I mean, if you can go up further in the market, I think that would work well. Like, I, I imagine the ideal customer for this is someone in the millions of annual revenue, not you know tens of thousands, because you want to charge them a lot of money, and so you want them to have a lot of money to pay you, and you want to be able to say, "Look, we're adding you know this many hundreds of thousands to your to your revenue each year." I think if you do this right, you probably do a handful of tests over something like six to nine months, and then you've got the pricing fairly dialed for a little while, and it doesn't require sort of babysitting constantly. So I think I would probably pitch it as something like a six-month engagement, and you're figuring some percentage of the, the net revenue increase that you, you generate and, and try to set it up along those lines. If you win, then you say, okay, great. Our, our, pay, our page is performing better. Everyone agrees. It's been six months. 
we've made you more money every month. Do you want to take our version and make it your live version on your website? And maybe they continue to send traffic through you. Like maybe there's a software component too, where it's like you've built these really good conversion uh, increasing best practices into this sort of pricing page slash checkout. And they just say, yeah, you just own slash pricing. Um, and then we'll, we'll send all the traffic there and we'll, we'll pay you a continual amount to kind of have the privilege of using this upgraded checkout. I'm curious actually about your experience with Tuple here because so you stopped changing the price itself. And I'm guessing that that was a relatively clear decision for you on uh, when to stop. At that point, there were diminishing returns perhaps. But are there other things that you could test or that come to mind to you to increase conversions? Let's say there are different benefits uh, that people would be interested in and, or uh, even you know, advanced personalization such that based on a certain ad that people click on, they see a different feature presented first and foremost. It seems like there would be an opportunity to continue tweaking that sales page beyond price itself. Agreed. If I were trying to make this a thing, I think I would probably go a bit further down the funnel. Like, okay, then when someone does sign up and starts using it, what percentage of those people actually activate and use the product the first time? So you have like an activation percentage. Like, could we do better than that? If if I've just if I own the pricing page, can I own the email sequence? Like, maybe you only email half your users, and I'll I'll email the other half, and like we'll see whose email onboarding sequences actually generate more activation. That kind of thing. I think you can sort of based on what you like and care about and are good at. I think you can sort of go f- along the funnel, kind of up or down, and and say like, yeah, we we we're the pricing, and also we're the onboarding people too. That's really interesting. There's so many companies out there who are focused on the the marketing, get people in the door, and it seems like uh, disproportionately few focused on the the back end and everything that you're talking about, upselling, increasing lifetime value. It's really that those people that have gotten further down the funnel are so valuable, right? Like like they've it's a miracle that anyone signs up for your product at all. Like getting someone's credit card from a stranger is just like it's just like amazing that that happened on the internet. And then like they sign up and then they never use it. Ah, like, oh, you were so close. Like you got like you went from like this universe of billions down to like you know the couple hundred people that signed up for your product this month, and like you lost half of them without even getting to try. Like they didn't even touch the product. Like that's the thing that, that we deal with. Like there's like our like activation percentage. Like sometimes people just we see this all the time, and like sometimes it's like heartbreaking because it's like it's a big company. It's like, oh my gosh, this person, this company has a thousand developers. They signed up, they never even used it. It's like, ah, so it's like there's, it's those those people are are much more valuable to me than like five percent more people on the landing page, probably, right? Let's come back to to the action steps a little bit here. So I'm gonna give a quick recap of how you had started Tuple. I'm gonna challenge myself to do that. So you uh, you're working at Thoughtbot, which we had interviewed uh, Chad Patel, the CEO of Thoughtbot, previously, nice. and. Uh, during your time there, you started many projects. You uh, bootstrapped a couple of things. You you had these codecations, I believe you called them. You did a lot of speaking, and during that time, you built up an email list that you leveraged in in uh, basically asking if people would pay for a replacement to this now defunct service, Screen Hero. And along that process, I mean, the the first action step that you had shared was for the listener to to create this articles of competence of some sort. And that seems like that's exactly what you did. You built up your reputation in the industry and in Twitter, and then you were able to tap into that. So how would you modify that that story? If you could rewind five years and, and change some things about how you approach this, and people can go find out more about that story on the Mixer G interview or Indie Hackers, but how would you how would you change things? 
I spent some time working by myself, which was like I knew was not going to be great for me because I wanted to quit my job and try to start things. And it went a lot better when I instead had co-founders, obviously. But like, could I have gotten to the that other part, you know, the second part without the first part? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not convinced that like I should like that. There's like interesting rewrite history lessons in in there. Exactly. I've got an I've got a related question, um, which which maybe we can have a little bit more of a discussion of. And it's not just for you two; it's for us to discuss. But you might have some insight because in the process of working at Thoughtbot, you helped launch a product that became independent, Upcase.com. And so we don't talk about this. We haven't. I don't remember talking about this much on the podcast. Like. I feel like this idea could lend itself to a developer at an existing company, you know, that has access to the pricing thing and saying, hey, like, how about I build a software internally to our company? Can I maybe have some ownership of it as well? Maybe I can, it can be something that I could bring externally. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, is there anything from the process of how that worked for you within ThoughtBot that might apply to somebody who's sitting you know, want to start this idea and think, yeah, maybe I could do this internally. Yeah. By the way, Christopher, I'm, I'm impressed with your, your prep and all that. I didn't mean to just like, you know, diss your question. Uh, but no, I, I, I mean, that's a fair diss. <laughs> like, <laughs> you answered it probably 50 times and I, I had this really elaborate way of, of leading into the question that ended up being pretty uh, banal. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. Um, but uh, Ethan, going back to your, your question, um, yeah, no, I actually think that's a great way on into this business is if you already yeah you're, you're already a developer at a SaaS app like you and you could just go pitch somebody or like just do it on your off hours or whatever and be like look i'm gonna try to like i want to i want to take over the pricing page for a little bit and just see what i can do with it i have some ideas and like that can be a great way to to cut your teeth on this this problem and like i'm not the i didn't invent this idea like there's there's other stuff written out there like price intelligently has a ton of stuff about how to price software or pri- pricing as well in general um there's lots of prior art in the microconf world about charging more and changing your packaging and picking your customer niches and things like that. So there's there's things you could go learn without having to do it the hard way. And then you can, yeah, give it a shot while you're getting paid a salary. That's that's even better. And then you have a sort of case study to point to before you even need to go take any risk. We've got a little bit of extra time here. I think it'd be a good chance to ask you since I, I know you maintain a list of other business ideas. But I, I have an idea that was like stupid, but it's kind of like close to my heart that I will share. Because I, I kind of want someone to build this, even though, and like maybe it's it, maybe it's secretly a good idea, but maybe it's just stupid. It's probably just stupid. Anyway, <laughs> here it is. So, Tuple, we have like we have thousands of people using Tuple. So can, all all throughout the day, we're firing a bunch of analytics events. Like John signed in, uh, John made a call, um, John signed out, that kind of thing. Like, and those, these are happening. Like uh, Mary gave us a rating of five stars on her last call. This is happening all the time. And one day for kicks, I was like. I was just kind of monitoring this event stream and like it's flowing by and I was like, wow, like it's so it's kind of amazing what we built here. Like there's so many people using it. Like it, it sort of made it feel alive in a way that it hadn't before to see the stream of like, call, like thousands of calls are happening every day. Holy crap. Like it's- I'm picturing the matrix, you're Neo. You're just like, you've got your code streaming behind. You can see uh, everyone in their homes <laughs> using your app. And it just like blew my mind. It's like, oh my God, we made a thing and it's, it's real. And so I decided to, I, I hooked up this like, the the say command from mac os that like will read stuff to these this event stream so that it'd be like new call rating five stars from john like new call uh mark from whatever and it was just like it was just like kind of like talking the event stream out to me out loud and it created this like background noise of like here's what's going on in the application right now and 
there's something about that that like i feel like could be just like a, a fun thing to be able to like direct like connect into so segment is like a, a very popular interface for sending event streams out through things so if i could like have a segment app that is kind of plug in then it's like turns it into a interesting sounding audio version of your event stream so it's like rather than just reading it out loud maybe you play like a high pitch sound when i get a good rating and a low pitch sound when i get a bad rating and a different kind of sound when like something like someone signs up for the first time and a really negative sound when someone someone cancels and you just kind of have this background audio kind of uh ambiance playing that is like your your app breathes to life to audio life and you can kind of like background monitor what's going on just by listening I do have one uh sort of covid era idea for you so here Go it is. For it. Yeah. Peloton style live classes, but for doing Pomodoros for work. Okay. So it's like you sign in for the 9 a.m. Uh, class and everyone there is working. And someone goes, all right, we're getting ready. We're going to do 25 minutes of work and go. And everyone <laughs> does their work and they go, okay, five minute break. Uh, this break, we're going to do stretches. I'm going to lead some stretches. Everyone stretch along with me because we've been sitting this whole time. All right. And we're going to start 25 minutes again. Here we go. All right, go. And like you're doing a, a, a like a live class, but you're just getting stuff done. That's funny. I love this idea. I would sign up for it. When I, many years ago, back in like 2007, uh, I was fascinated with the idea of as a creator, like I'm a, you're a, you're a musician. I know Ben, like I play piano. I, and I created this project where I created a song a day, you know? And so it, a lot of famous musicians and successful musicians have done that as a way of exercising their craft and getting better at it. And it's really easy to do, to come up with physical exercise routines like, oh, push ups here and, you know, pull ups and whatever. But work exercise, right? Like having some sort of routines that you can do in different domains and, you know, that you can have a coach for that are repeatable and that you can get it better at day by day. Uh, I feel like that fits in really well with that. You know, it could, you could put in creative exercises, work exercises. You could, you could target it towards programmers. You could target it towards writers and artists, you know, depending on mm -hmm. what kind of domains people are working in. Yeah. Again, definitely a fun idea. I like that one. Yeah. We're in 2020, late 2020. No one's really cracked the productivity nut even before COVID. And now with COVID and people working from home, there is a sizable percentage of the population that is less productive sitting home alone in front of their computer trying to work. And if you're extroverted or introverted, you might fall in that category. Yeah, an idea like that I think would be uh, useful. So we're coming up on time here. If you're out there listening, let us know what you think at the very least. Ben, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for sharing these three ideas and, and di deep diving into uh, the pricing one. Uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you and what you're doing? I'm pretty active on Twitter if you want. I'm R00K there. Uh, and if you're interested in a um, Mac OS app for doing remote pair programming, check out tuple.app. Great conversation. I feel like I'm uh, energized to go kick ass the rest of the day. I appreciate it, Ben. Talk to you later on. Take care. Thanks. The podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.